Thank you. We are in the book of 1 Samuel, so if you'd like, you have your own Bible, please open to 1 Samuel. We got such a positive response from reading the entire book of Ruth last week that I'm just going to read the whole book of 1 Samuel. <laughs> That's why first service went long. So, no, we'll... I would encourage you to read the book of 1 Samuel at home. It's certainly, it's, it's a different experience reading through without the, without the interruptions. Kind of like when you uh, TiVo your, your programs or sports and you can skip the co- commercials. Although I hope my commentary is not like a bad commercial. These, uh, these books were meant in an oral culture where truth was spoken and taught in a, in a group setting, passed these stories down. Wasn't that wonderful to just hear the whole story of Ruth read all the way through? We will focus, though, on, on just the first seven chapters, and really just uh, chapters 1 through 2 specifically. But if you'll read this week through the first seven chapters, chapter a day, right? And if you're visiting this morning, and I know I met a few visitors, we are in the middle of a series where we're going through the Old Testament, um, kind of a survey to get the broad scope and sequence of God's story that he's writing in history. The Bible's um, not just some holy book to be left on the shelf. That's not reverencing the Word of God. Reading it, knowing it, asking questions about what it means and ultimately trusting in God and in His message to us and in His Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and seeking how to live lives pleasing to Him. That is what He's intended with His book. We, we call... Uh, it's popular these days to call that a meta-narrative. Narrative story, meta-overarching. We're all living different stories. And this meta-narrative of God is the story that connects all of our stories together. Otherwise, we're living these disjointed lives. There's nothing to unify us, nothing to make sense of history, of the world, where history is going. But God is the God of history He is writing history. He knows how it's all going to turn out. He's written the last chapter in the book already. And he knows the future perfectly. Our lives only find ultimate significance when it's our lives, our stories are grounded in this ultimate story. Does my life matter? Yes, in Christ it matters. Does my life have purpose? Yes, when God reveals the purpose for which He created each of us and we live according to that purpose. And yet we have seen through God's Word that man has turned from God's story. Man wants to write his own story independently of God. Man wants to determine for himself the meaning of his own life, the meaning of existence, the meaning of reality, the meaning of good and evil. We got to the book of Judges. And ironically, nobody could really judge because they had lost the standard. You cannot judge rightly without a fixed standard. 
The book of Judges, the main theme in there, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And are we not living in a culture that has drunk deeply of the intoxicating beverage of doing what is right in your own eyes? And, and we're, we're drunk on our own exaggerated sense of self and self-esteem and what matters to me matters to me and my truth is my truth and I'll live the way I want to live and nobody can tell me differently. And we can't find that which should unify us as a country. We have lost the way. Even in our political season now, we can't narrow down the candidates because all the special interest groups, everybody wants what they want and the politicians have to pander to all these different individual ideas. We know something's wrong, but we don't all agree what it is that is wrong. We live in a culture that our favorite verse in the Bible is, Judge not, lest ye be judged. And yet, if you can't judge, how do you know what is right and wrong? What is good and what is evil? What is light and what is dark? We need to be discerning, but you cannot be discerning without a fixed standard of truth. And so, God called a special people to Himself, the nation Israel, gave them the law of God, gave them a special land to live in. And they were supposed to be a light to the world to demonstrate to the world what living according to the righteousness of God would look like, and it would be compelling to the world. And when Israel's at its best, that's exactly what they are, but when they're at their worst and everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes, they're weak, they're not living lives like Matt said this morning, lives that would make people want to ask you, what is the reason for the hope that is in you? If you're not living a compelling life, nobody's going to ask you that question. And so, Israel at this point in its history, it's a mess, it's weak, it can't defend itself from its enemies. God is preparing the nation for a king. God is preparing the nation for someone to come in and bring reformation and revival. We just celebrated Reformation Day here at Heritage Oak School. Maybe some of you privately celebrate Reformation Day. The church needed to be reformed. Often the church needs to be reformed. It loses its way. Why? Because it takes its eyes off God's Word. And Martin Luther said, back to the Bible, sola scriptura. And when we go to the Word, we see that God gets the glory alone, and it is by faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen? Amen. That is the way back. We want reformation in our lives. We want reformation in the church. We want reformation in our culture but reformation cannot happen without repentance and revival. Repentance can't happen until you are able to acknowledge that you have lost the way, that you have gone astray, and our culture is not there yet. We know it's a mess, but nobody wants to say why we're in the mess that we're in. And so we pray that God brings revival by His Holy Spirit and repentance so we can have reformation. Until that day, we're just going to have a lot of people shouting over each other, right? And so we come 
to the house of the Lord this morning and open His Word so God can speak through the clutter, through the noise, through all of the fighting, through all of man's ideas, that we get a clear word from the Lord. Israel is ready for a king, but first a prophet must come and prepare the hearts of the people for a king. And Samuel is going to be that prophet. When God sends the Lord Jesus in the New Testament, who does he send first? The prophets and then John the Baptist to prepare a way for the king. Let God's word this morning be our prophet to prepare our hearts for the king to sit on the throne of our hearts. Amen? Amen. And First Samuel is going to give us a, a number of contrasts. Contrasts. Right? In a world that does what's right in its own eyes, there's no room for, for contrast. I know our world says we're about diversity and tolerance, but really there is no room for contrast. The minute you start to say something is right or wrong or something is better, <gasps> people get upset. Yet they, can't, they don't live their lives like that. Certainly, people don't live their lives as if everything is just as good as everything else. Right? Because the minute Christians speak up, well, that's wrong. Oh, wait, now there's wrong? We're going to see contrasting prophets, contrasting kings, Saul and David. And this morning, we're going to see contrasting parents. And the room just got a little nervous. This makes us nervous. Parenting is is, uh, a very personal business. For some, it brings a lot of fear into their life. I'm going to mess my kids up or they're going to embarrass me somehow. Parenting out of fear is not the way to go. But others in their pride say, Oh, I, I am a great parent and take heed lest you fall. You think you've got parenting nailed. Just wait. I hope the Lord doesn't have to humble you through the rebellion of your children. But certainly the Bible does give us some principles for godly parenting. No formulas. Do you hear that this morning? No formulas. There's no, I do A, B, and C, and God has to guarantee X, Y, Z. I know we want formulas. I don't know that chapter in the Bible. It's, it doesn't exist. It's, it's, it's difficult, this parenting business. If you finished your parenting, listen this morning. There's much to learn, especially because you can mentor younger parents. If you've just finished parenting and with mixed results, don't get up and leave. We're not here to bash you over the head. Don't leave with a guilt trip. By the way... That's prideful too. If you feel so guilty about the way your kids turned out, you've taken too much credit for the way they've turned out. And if your kids are doing great and they're walking with the Lord, amen. First, uh, John, the Apostle John says, I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in the Lord. Now I know he's probably referring to his spiritual children that he discipled, but your first disciplees are your children. Your first mission field 
is really your own heart and then your children. And so this morning, the intention isn't to puff anyone up in pride or to beat anyone over the head. If the Holy Spirit is convicting you for changes you need to make, make changes. Change course. If your children are out of the house now with mixed results, keep praying for them. God's not done. He's not finished. As much as you can be an influence in their life, certainly you can't meddle. They're not four-year-olds. You can't tell them what to do. You can't change their behavior with sticks and carrots. Oh, you could manipulate if you want, but that's not going to be honoring to God. But continue to be a source of light and truth in their life and be honest about the mistakes that you've made so they can see humility modeled for them. If you've been a child yourself, which is everyone in this room, maybe it's time to repent of blaming your parents for all of your sins. Or blaming your parents for how your life turned out. Or Certainly we can look at the way our parents parented us and look at the scriptures and if changes need to be made, make changes. But don't fall into that trap of nitpicking your parents' parenting to death. You know, I notice a lot of people are extremely prideful who nitpick their parents. And you're like, wait a minute, they raised you. So you're proud of who you are, but you won't give your parents any credit. They're kind of like, no, I'm, I'm great in spite of their parenting. So let's get into the, the, the text this morning and just receive with, with open hands here. Let me introduce you to a family, Elkanah and his, his wife, Hannah. Now, there was a certain man from Ramathaim Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim. And his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. How's that been working for people so far through our survey of the Old Testament, right? Not so good. And... Not working out any better for Elkanah. The name of one was Hannah and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Uh Uh-oh. Jealousy, coveting, rivalry. Remember, in this culture, children meant everything, especially for a woman. Right? Being a woman with no children is like being a seven-foot-tall man who can't play basketball. What's the point? Other than getting cans off the top shelf. (laughs) No children, and especially sons, were critically important to pass on the family name, to provide security for the family. There's no Social Security, no Medicare, No retirement homes. You needed your children to take care of you in your old age. It was a source of pride and an honor-shame society where honor is everything. To have sons, daughters were fine too, but it was all about getting that son. And Hannah had no children. Now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Three times a year they were required to to go make sacrifice to the Lord. 
And the two sons of Eli, who's the priest, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. She had lots of kids. It's kind of like when you give each one of your kids a nickel or a quarter to put in the offering plate. So he would give them each their portion to give their sacrifice. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion. For he loved Hannah. He, he truly loved his wife, even though she was barren. Truly loved his wife. Gave her a double portion. But the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her. The word or the phrase in the Hebrew means to bring thunder down on someone. Irritating, right? Irritating almost seems like too soft of a word. I mean, she really rubbed it in her face. They, they could kind of stay away from each other during the year, but when they went to make sacrifice, everyone had to go together. There was no getting around the fact who had all the children. And I'm sure that Penenna was quite skilled at reminding Hannah of her barrenness. Hannah, have you seen all my beautiful children? There's so many, I can't keep track of them all. You know, maybe you could help me with some of my kids, since you have nothing else to do. Or maybe I'm reading too much into it, because, I mean, really, would women do that to each other? <laughs> would men act that way? Of course, we're, we're sinners. This, nothing new is under the sun. And so, at a time when Hannah should be overjoyed to go and sacrifice to the Lord... It was a terrible time for her. Her heart could, could not worship in that environment. It happened year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her. So she wept and would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? In the Hebrew, the word sad is actually the word for bad. Ra'ah. Ah, even sounds unpleasant. The, the understanding is more than sadness, depression, discontentment, sour face. Nothing could cheer this woman up. Grumpy, bitter, growing more and more bitter with each passing year. And her husband says what any husband would say. Am I not better to you than ten sons? I love you. I give you double portions. I reassure you, I reaffirm you, it's okay that, that you don't have children. And she just could not be happy. The woman of his youth, the happy woman he remembers marrying. Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, she's desperate now. She's going to bargain with God. If you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant three times, she says maidservant. will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. That's that Nazarite vow, the same Nazarite vow 
that um, Samson had. She's saying, if you'll give me a son, I will dedicate him to you. I will make sure his entire life is all about you, God. And so we've seen Hannah's plight and Hannah's petition. Now let's see how the Lord answers her prayer. Now it came about as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart, only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. People would bring their grain offering and their drink offering, which was wine. And certainly, there was probably some drunkenness, unfortunately, at the temple. He thought she was drunk. We get the first impression here from Eli, actually this is our second impression, that something's not quite right here. Maybe a little tone deaf to spiritual things. First, first of all, his sons are named Egyptian names. Very strange for a priest of the Lord to name his sons Egyptian names. Hophni and Phinehas. One of those names means a tadpole. And the commentators think this was a common name Egyptians would name their kids because the god of the Nile in Egypt was a frog, like a half-man, half-frog god. So something strange is going on here. Not typical names we'd expect a priest of the Lord to name his sons. And secondly, to not be able to recognize a woman who is crying out in prayer to God. He thought she was drunk. So he goes to rebuke her. He said to her, How long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah replied, No, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink. But I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman, for I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. Then Eli answered and said, Well, go in peace. And and may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. She said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. She has hope now that this man of God, the the priest, I guess thinking that he has a special connection with God. And the the priest was supposed to be an intercessor, a mediator between God and man, make sacrifice for the people's sins, atone for their sins. She, She has hope that perhaps her prayer will be answered because this priest has given her this blessing. Let's find out what happens. And they arose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and returned again to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. It came about in due time after Hannah had conceived that she gave birth to a son. And she named him Samuel or Shemuel, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord. Samuel means name of God. But in the Hebrew, it's the same consonants as the word for to ask. So she named her son a name that would remind her that she asked the Lord for this gift, and the Lord answered. And like we sang this morning, every breath is from God, every gift is from God, everything we have is from God. Hannah realized this is from God, this gift from God. And she makes this pledge. 
Then the man Elkanah went up with all his household to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, I will not go up until the child is weaned. Then I will bring him that he may appear before the Lord and stay there forever. She's going to make good on her vow. God, if you give me a son, I will dedicate him to you. Brothers and sisters, this should be our attitude with all of our children. Lord, if you bless me with children, I will dedicate them to you. I will raise them up in the instruction and nurture of the Lord. I will teach them to serve you and obey you. I will model obedience and worship to them. I will dedicate them to the Lord. You take having children for granted some, sometimes. They're each one a gift from God for a specific purpose with special gifts and a special calling on each of their lives. Can you imagine what it was like for Samuel to grow up knowing and being reminded from an early age, you are dedicated to God. You will serve the Lord all the days of your life. (laughs) It's a sign, right? And so... It says, um, her husband says, do what seems best to you. Remain until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord confirm his word. I am so glad that Hannah decided not to go sacrifice with wrong intentions of her heart for the first time she could rub it in the face of Peninnah. Look at my son. You know, an Elkanah loves his, his son. Oh, your, your kids are nice too. But she didn't do that. She made good on her promise to God, made good on her vow. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. Now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with a three-year-old bull and one ephah of flour and a jug of wine. She's brought a bull to sacrifice, grain to make a grain offering, wine to make a drink offering to the Lord brought him into the house of the Lord in Shiloh, although the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli. She said, Oh, my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am that woman, the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. For this boy I prayed, and the Lord has given me my petition, which I asked of him. I wonder if Eli remembered. Remember you thought I was drunk? I mean, he sees all kinds of people coming to sacrifice. And it's probably been three or four years now. Maybe, maybe more. Probably three, three four years, we think. Uh, Samuel's about three or, or four now. They nursed their children a little longer than we do in our culture. So I have also dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. I know that must have been difficult for her to leave him there at the temple, but she trusted in the Lord. It was a good thing for her. And she'd come back and visit three times a year, and we find out she'd sew him a special little ephod that he'd wear, and he'd outgrow it, and she'd sew a new one each year. And so that's Hannah's pledge, and that's really where our focus ought to be, is this pledge that he will be dedicated to the Lord. Our children, we must, we do this baby dedication up here, but it's so much more than just a ritual or a tradition. 
It's something you should be saying every morning when you wake up. These, these children belong to the Lord. It's a stewardship, and it's such a short time. Our oldest daughter turning 16 this month. They're here, and then, and then they're off. You have a short time to pour into their lives. They belong to God. And then we get Hannah's praise. I would love for you really to, to study chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, this beautiful song of thanksgiving. You'll see Hannah's heart here, how much she trusts the Lord to be her provider and her deliverer. We contrast Hannah now with Eli. Eli's are an example of a dishon- of dishonoring God as a parent. Hannah honored God as a parent. Eli dishonored God as a parent. In chapter 2, verse 12, we see the fruit of Eli's poor parenting. He has these two sons who are also working as priests. Right? They're from the tribe of Levi. God set the tribe of Levi aside to, to be the priestly tribe, you pretty much knew when you were born and you were a son in the tribe of Levi what your profession was going to be when you grew up. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord and the custom of the priests with the people. When any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and all that the fork brought up the priest would take for himself. Thus they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, which we remember from the Mosaic law was required to burn the fat, I know that's the, that's the flavorful part, right? And so what these boys were doing, these young men were requiring people to give them the sacrifice and they were taking the best portions for themselves. Right? The filet mignon and the, the tender parts with, with the fat. The first fruits, the best, were supposed to go to the Lord. This wonderful aroma it must have been to be burning, barbecuing all day long. They would say to the man who was sacrificing, Give the priest meat for roasting, as he will not take boiled meat from you, only raw. I don't want boiled meat. You don't want boiled meat, right? But it's flavorful. If the man said to him, They must surely burn the fat first, right? This is Mosaic, the Mosaic law. You're priests of the law. You're supposed to know these things. They would say... No, but you shall give it to me now, and if not, I will take it by force. Imagine uh, the elders of the church strong-arming you. Give me your wallet. You came to sacrifice to worship, and these men who were set apart from God, consecrated by God to lead the people in worship, to make atonement for the people, taking advantage of their position of honor, and privilege, and shaking down God's people. And not just shaking them down, but at the, at the most important moment, I'm coming to atone for my sins, this is important, this is crucial. 
If I'm not right with God, then it doesn't matter what's going on in my life. And to take advantage of that situation. They were completely, their hearts were so far from God, they didn't realize that not only what they were doing would be wrong in any circumstance, but especially profane in this context. Thus the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men despised the offering of the Lord. Then we see the sweet little story about Samuel's mom bringing him his little ephod, his little robe. She would bring it to him year after year, and he, he was learning how to make sacrifices to God and learning to be a good priest. And you know what? In the meantime, because of Hannah's faithfulness, the Lord opened her womb again, and she gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Isn't that wonderful? It says, now Eli was very old and he heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel. Like, now? You're too old to do anything about it. And he tries to rebuke them, but he's old. They're set in their ways. He should have removed them from the temple. He should have cast them out. If he really took the Mosaic Law seriously, he would have stoned them. You know, but these are his sons. And we ask, where was he during their formative years? Now, the Bible's going to answer that for us. But he said to them, Why do you do such things, the evil things that I hear from all these people? I wonder if it now it bothers him because he's embarrassed by his sons. Didn't it bother him enough when they were young and nobody knew their shenanigans to discipline and correct his children? But now it bothers him. Everybody knows who these hooligans are. Oh, those are Eli's sons. Don't bring your sacrifice to them. The way it would work, too, is you'd be assigned which priest you would take your sacrifice to. You know, Oh, don't give me Eli's sons. Right? Is that like your greatest fear as a parent, that your children will grow up to be so embarrassing? That they'll humiliate you. This is an honor-shame society. We're not so much an honor-shame society. But it's sad if that's the greatest fear a parent would have, that my, my children would grow up and embarrass me. Your, your, your greatest hope and your goal would be just that your children know the Lord. They'd be humble before the Lord. And whatever that ends up looking like, that ought to be good enough for you. My children know the Lord. They're walking with the Lord. Maybe they don't go to the church or the denomination you would love for them to go to, but they know the Lord. They've made the faith their own. They didn't choose the profession I wanted them to choose. Maybe they didn't choose the spouse you wanted them to choose. So be it. If they're walking with the Lord, what else could you ask for? I know some of you would take that in a heartbeat right now. All those other things you wanted, I would take that. Well, that's your prayer then. That my children would walk with the Lord. Whatever that looks like, I can't be Holy Spirit in their life. That they would just walk with the Lord. A man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, so an angel of the Lord comes. 
Did I not indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when you were in Egypt in bondage to Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose them from all the tribes of Israel to be my priests, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to carry an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the fire offerings of the sons of Israel? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling? And honor your sons above me. That's the key. If you're an underliner, underline that in your Bible. That is the problem. He honored his sons above the Lord. Whatever his kids wanted, he indulged them. I just want them to like me. I want my kids to look up to me, to be pleased with me, to whatever it is people do. It's all about me. It's not about the Lord and it's not about my kids. When you indulge your kids, it's really all about you. Heaven forbid we should ever tell our kids no. Not in the culture we're living in. Don't want to ruin their self-esteem. I don't want my kids to hate me. Your kids will love you if, if, if you know, they know you love the Lord and they know you love them and you set boundaries and you enforce those boundaries with love and with grace. Listen to what God says. He says, You made yourselves fat with the choicest of every offering of my people Israel. Therefore, the Lord God of Israel declares, I did indeed say that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord declares... Far be it from me, for those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. You have to understand these words in the Hebrew. To honor is kavot, heaviness, weightiness. It's this idea of gravitas, heaviness, seriousness, those who honor me. And the opposite of this honor this is light. It's heavy versus light. It's a contrast. Those who don't take me seriously... Those who take themselves more seriously than me. That's lightly esteeming God. He says, I will lightly esteem you. And look at the play on words. God, just amazing the way he writes this. He says, you made yourselves heavy by eating the sacrifices of the Lord. You took your position of privilege and honored yourself and told people, "I'll, I'll take the sacrifices that are meant for the Lord. That's my food. I'm going to take the best for myself. And you made yourself fat. Literally, they're fat. They're overweight from eating all these sacrifices. And God says, you've made yourself heavy. Literally, you've honored yourself. And so now I'm going to take you lightly. I'm going to take you lightly. What kind of example would that be if God allowed these, these priests, these negligent priests to continue with this. Behold, the days are coming when I will break your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. You will see the distress of my dwelling in spite of all the good that I do for Israel. And an old man will not be in your house forever. Yet I will not cut off every man of yours from my altar so that your eyes will fail from weeping and your soul grieve. So there's a little grace there. 
And all the increase of your house, though, will die in the prime of life. So another play on words there, because people were required to bring a bull in its prime of life, a three-year-old bull. I will, I will cut off your sons in the prime of their life. But I will raise up for myself... I'm sorry, I skipped. This will be the sign to you which will come concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. On the same day, both of them will die. Very sad. Both sons will die on the same day. But I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my soul. That's Samuel, but ultimately, who is that? His son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I will build him an enduring house, and he will walk before my anointed always. Everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread. And say, please assign me to one of the priest's offices so that I may eat a piece of bread. He's going to turn the tables on this family. They're going to have to come and ask. We want to be priests again. Can you please assign me to one of the priest's offices? You better hope the priest you get assigned to is better than you and your two sons were. What's the contrast there? Hannah dedicated her son to the Lord. God's glory was what was most important to her. And she taught her, her, her son that. Whereas Eli and his children, their own glory, what was important to them. Look, our kids are born into this world as sinners. We understand that. They're selfish, self-centered. You have to train them at an early age to start understanding their own sin nature and how much they need Jesus. Teach them to serve, to give, to be about others. Do they, do they have to help out around the house or do you indulge them? Don't start giving them an allowance until they're willing to do work just to contribute to the family and be a blessing to others. Find ways for them to be a blessing to others. Helping the poor, helping widows, helping the elderly. There's opportunities at our church for young people to serve. Be an LIT and Awana. Help, help your parents teach Sunday school when you get to the proper age. It, 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 it won't be like this. It's, you can't indulge your, your children their whole life and then they become adults and say, oh, now it's time to serve and be an adult. It won't, it won't happen like that. It has to be instilled into them and modeled for them. It's the root of Eli's poor parenting was that he honored his sons above God. He feared his own sons more than God. If I rebuke them, what if they don't like me? You know, those dreaded words is for parents, I hate you. They don't mean it. Every kid says it at least once, probably. They didn't get something they wanted. It's okay. Get used to it. That's life. <laughs> You're not going to get all the things that you want. And you'd be miserable if you did get all the things that you wanted, right? Look at this, uh, this chiasm here. 
chiasm is a literary device where there's balance and parallelism that kind of leads us to a main point. And the, and the main point is emphasized. This is what God really wants us to see in this passage here. I mean, he inspired the writer to set up this chiasm on purpose. The chiasm starts in chapter 2, verse 1, the song of Hannah. And Hannah's song of thanksgiving ends with a reference to the Lord's anointed. In fact, she says at the end of her song, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth and he will give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his anointed. And then we get a story about Samuel ministering to the Lord and then we find out about Eli's sons and their sins. So we have that contrast between Samuel and Eli's sons. And then we get another example of Samuel ministering to the Lord. So sandwiched between Samuel serving the Lord we see Eli's selfish sons serving themselves. See the contrast. And then Eli blesses Samuel's parents in chapter 2, verse 20. And then the chiasm starts going back down the other direction. We get an example of Samuel growing in the Lord. He's growing in knowledge. He's growing in grace. He's growing in his love for God. And then we get to see Eli's sons. We find out that now Eli's sons are sleeping with women who've come to serve at the temple. If you could see Mike's face right now, yeah, that's the right face to make. What? What? They're using their celebrity almost to to violate women who have come to serve the Lord in the temple. And his dad's done nothing about this. And then we get another example of Samuel growing in the Lord. Again, on purpose, sandwiching the sons, the sins of Eli's sons in between the righteous character of Samuel. And then the chiasm ends with the oracle of the man of God. And remember, when he finishes his prophecy, he says, God will raise up the anointed priest. So it's completely purposeful the way this is structured. And it drives our focus and attention right to the middle of the key as in that Eli blesses Samuel's parents for their faithfulness to dedicate their son to God. I wonder if Eli knew all along, and I think we often do as sinners, when we are dropping the ball, we know we're dropping the ball. We know we should do something. But due to our own pride or laziness or guilt, man, if I tell my kids to... To repent, I'm going to have to repent. I don't want to be a hypocrite in front of them. Or maybe Eli was a hypocrite. He said one thing, but his life demonstrated something completely different. To him, maybe being a priest was just a job. It wasn't really what was most important to him. He was just going through the motions. Ironically, Eli's name means God is exalted, but God tells Eli, you've exalted yourself. God commands us to honor Him by teaching our children to honor Him. He is so clear in His Word. That that is the first principle here of parenting. Honor God by teaching children to honor God. 
And you can't just tell them to honor God. You have to demonstrate it in your life. They'll figure it out when they're older, who you really honor and who you really love. You can say what you say Sunday morning, but they see how you live the rest of the week. Don't teach your kids to pay lip service to God. The Shema, the prayer Jews would pray three times a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might, with everything that you are. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. You can't teach them diligently to your children if they're not on your heart first. You can have them memorize scripture. You can take them to Sunday school. You can take them to Awana. But if you don't know the Lord and you don't love the Lord and you're not walking with the Lord, they're not going to catch the faith. More is caught than taught, we say. And you shall teach them diligently to your children when you sit in your house and when you rise up in the morning, when you, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up, basically all day long, helping them to to know God, to love God, to have a biblical worldview. Joshua, remember Joshua is, for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And yet we get to the book of Judges and a generation arose that did not know the Lord. I believe that this church has been blessed by God because of our commitment to the Word of God and to the Great Commission through evangelism, discipleship, and missions, especially in the evangelization and discipleship of children. I believe that with all my heart, that this church flourishes because our first mission field, our children, we are teaching them to love the Lord. When I, when I hear of a church where there's no children, something went terribly wrong. Something went terribly wrong. Perhaps the parents turned the church into their private country club. Children are noisy and they're messy. And, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get ahead at work. I'm trying to make a name for myself in this world. Who has time for kids? I'll drop them off at their activities and their clubs and, and maybe a wanna. And hope that does the trick. It, it won't. I mean, God is gracious and merciful. He can do anything. But He's certainly shown us in His Word the better path. It begins with respect for authority. What is the first commandment God gives us that deals with other people in our life? Before our kids learn not to steal, not to lie, not to commit adultery, not to covet, they need to learn to respect, honor your father and your mother, learning to respect authority. We are the first, quote-unquote, picture of God the Father in our children's life. Mom and Dad. God is a difficult person to grasp, is He not? especially for, for little children. Difficult for us to grasp. They can see us and they can touch us and they can hear us and hug us and listen to us. Not that we are to replace God in their life, but we're slowly 
teaching them to respect God by respecting us first. But they should see us respect and honor God. Paul says in Ephesians 6.1, Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Israel is not going to last long in the land if they don't teach their children to honor father and mother. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. What are the results of honoring God in the way we influence our children? This is, this is the good stuff here. This is why this is worth it. Number one, when we honor God in the way we raise our children, God is glorified and well-pleased. Isn't that reason enough? Before you say, I want my kids to turn out a certain way, first and foremost, as a Christian, you should care about honoring God before you even have children. Now, I praise God for His grace in my life. It was really once Jennifer and I decided we wanted to have children that we even went back to church. And I know that's common for a lot of people because we were like, well, our kids are going to need to know how to be moral. Right? And we want to make like-minded friends at church. But that shouldn't be the first and foremost reason for seeking the Lord and going to church and hearing from His Word. But one of the reasons that we, we have a robust children's program here is we know so many people come back to church when they have kids. Right? Your kids hit two and they humble you and you're like, we don't know what we're doing. Go back to church. Help. <laughs> we're here to help. Secondly, we will be blessed by God. We saw that. We will be blessed by God. But here's the deal. You don't get to tell God what the blessing should be. Do you hear me? You can't tell God what the blessing should be. So many people are missing out on the blessing that their children are and the blessing the Lord is pouring out on your lives because you've decided what the blessing ought to look like. My kids have to be a certain way. They have to be good at this. They have to... Make me proud. They have to be great at Little League or they have to be great on the piano or they have to be A students or they have to be handsome or pretty or blah, 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 blah. How about that children in and of themselves are the blessing and that you have these little people who love you and you can love back and teach them to love your God. That's the blessing. And if they know the Lord and walk with the Lord, who could ask for more? You, you can't determine for them where they're going to work, who they're going to marry, where they're going to live, what choices they're going to make. Let that go to God. Teach them to love the Lord and walk in His ways and let, let God take care of the rest. Amen? Amen. That's the blessing. Generally speaking, children will be more likely to honor the Lord if they are instructed, corrected, and disciplined to honor the Lord and if honoring the Lord is modeled for them. Okay, no promises in the Bible, but God isn't saying there's nothing you can do to influence your children. We have enormous influence over our children, but not so much that we can be sovereign God in their lives and determine exactly what they look like. But if 
Some people don't like hearing that we have that much influence over our children because they're afraid of taking the blame if their kids go astray. Look, really, do you want to raise children and have no influence over them? Is that what you really want? To have no influence over your kids? Therefore, you can say, not my fault. It's all just a big gamble. You know that's not the case. And yet I know some of you are struggling. We all struggle with with children who either haven't accepted the Lord or they're in rebellion or they're that kid in school that the teachers dread. Whatever the case may be. And so now you're like, I don't want to have to take the blame for that. We have influence over the life of our children, but not... 100% guaranteed, programmable robots. Hold those things in tension as you raise your children. Yes, I have influence over them, but ultimately God does the saving. Don't hear me say, well, I guess there's nothing I can do to help my children. No, be diligent to do all the things we talked about today. But remember, there are no guarantees. If you keep reading about You get to 1 Samuel chapter 8 and you find out Samuel has two sons. He names them Abijah, God is my father, and Joel, Jehovah is God. And they end up disqualifying themselves as judges. They're like, what? How did Samuel not raise good? Scares the jeepers out of me as a pastor. You've got Aaron's two sons in the Old Testament, Nadab and Abihu, got fried in the tabernacle because they offered strange fire. You've got Eli's sons that you'll, if you keep reading the story, die in battle. And then you've got Samuel's two sons who are disqualified as judges. The people are like, we don't want your sons as judges. Uh Uh-uh. They steal. So that'll keep us humble. Again, there are no guarantees But I do want to leave you with this. The most important thing when it comes to raising our children is the gospel. The most important thing to remember. If you are a a gospel-saturated parent, then you will model to your kids the love of God and the grace of God. When they misbehave, yes, there's consequences, and you must rebuke and correct, but always in the context of Yes, this is why God sent Jesus. We sin. We go astray. Daddy makes mistakes. Daddy sins. Mommy sins a lot too. (laughs) Daddy sins more. It's not a contest. Every opportunity is an opportunity to point our kids to Christ. Look look back at 1 Samuel 1.24. Where where is Jesus in the passage here? Remember when Hannah brought her son to be dedicated to the Lord? Now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with a three-year-old bull and one ephah of flour and a jug of wine and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. Although the child was young, this, this whole verse is just pregnant with messianic prophetic meaning. Elkanah's name, the dad's name, means God provides a son. Yes, he did in Hannah's life, but God provides a son, does he not? And Hannah's name means, anyone know? Grace. 
Hannah's name means grace. God's free gift. Unmerited favor. She did nothing to, to get this son. She knew she was helpless. I mean, she tried what you're supposed to do in order to have a son and it wasn't working. She was completely dependent on God. They sacrificed a bull in the prime of its life just as God sacrificed his son in the prime of his life. Offered a grain offering and a drink offering, Jesus gives his body and his blood while we take bread and wine at the Lord's Supper. And they made their offering in Shiloh, the Hebrew name for Messiah. Yes, lay down the law in your home. Teach your kids the word of God. Obey the word of God yourself. Exhort, discipline, rebuke, correct, and praise your children. But do it all with grace. Do it all sprinkled with grace. My observation is that parents who have a profound sense of God's grace in their life typically raise children who also have a profound sense of of God's grace in their life. Hear me out. I'm not saying 100% one-to-one guarantee, but that seems to be the one ingredient that is more important than any other ingredient. I'm a sinner saved by grace. What an amazing God we have. What an amazing Savior. Won't you love my Savior too? My children? Whatever happens... Follow God. I will always love you. God will always love you in and through your faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, this morning we want to thank you for being a perfect father. A God of law, but a God of grace. A God of justice, but a God of mercy. A God of perfect love. Thank you for the gift of our own children and that you've blessed this church with many, many children. We love our children, Lord. We want them to love you. Lord, forgive us for not loving you more than anything else. Forgive us, Lord, if we are showing or demonstrating to our children anything else being more important than you. May we not just go through the motions here at church and at home. That we would be like Hannah, dedicating our children to the Lord, dedicating our lives to the Lord. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit quicken the hearts of our children, that they would come to know you at an early age, place their faith in you, Walk in your will and in your word all the days of their life. We ask you do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.